Hi, I'm Dr. Jan Jaffer, and this is God Teeth. All right, so I want to introduce Dr. Meb Sayani, who's going to be here talking to us today about sleep apnea. Mebs and I have known each other for a number of years and going back, well, many years we've known each other, but we've been working together for pretty much 10 years. 10 years, years now. now, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're excited to bring something to the audience that allows them to learn a little bit more about the problems and the, the understanding of sleep apnea and how it affects you, you know, on a daily basis. So, Mebs, you know, I mean, the whole concept, sleep apnea, tell me a little bit about it. I mean, help me understand, you know, what is sleep apnea? Why should I be worried about sleep apnea? Yeah, so good question. You know, I mean, there's several different types of sleep apnea, and the most commonly occurring one is the obstructive sleep apnea. So what that implies is basically there's an obstruction in the airway, and that happens while you're sleeping, and so this prevents air from going into your lungs. And so that has a huge impact on your body health. It has an impact on your uh, sleep hygiene as well, too. So oddly... About 20% of North Americans suffer from sleep apnea, but up to 80 to 90% go undiagnosed. So it's a hugely undiagnosed situation where people are not even aware that they have it. Okay. And so if if you did have it, are there ways to un, to know or what would you, like how would I know or how would I feel like I have sleep apnea? I mean, is, are there some things that would tell me that I should be concerned and go talk to my doctor or talk to my dentist? And I'm sure you explain the process after that, but what would tell me that I should try to figure this out if, if I have a problem. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, there is probably, you know, signs and symptoms that you probably already know and, you know, you're aware of, or but you just haven't put your finger on it as to why I feel the way I do when I wake up. So certain things that will make you feel that way is, you know, when you have to reach for a coffee midday to stay awake, or you wake up feeling tired and fatigued, you know, you wake up with a sore throat and you go, hmm, I don't have a cold or a flu. Why am I waking up with a sore throat? And it's because you've been... <sighs> taking in that air that way and so that kind of makes you leave with a sore throat waking up and then the other factor that you look at is you know when you wake up with a dry mouth and so these are certain things that will kind of say hmm why is this happening if I can just explain a little bit about the pathophysiology of how this happens and what kind of causes that to happen sure um, so I guess when we breathe air goes through our nose and our mouth and it kind of goes down a common airway and it goes into your lungs and so what typically happens is that we start getting some constriction happening because we have fatty tissue deposits around our neck and so as we fall asleep you're already a little bit compromised because there's a bit of squishing effect going on the airway and so as soon as you fall asleep your muscles relax your muscles are relaxed it starts squishing the airway up and so then the air doesn't go into your lungs and your lungs go oh oh panic mode i need to get some air and so it kind of sends a signal up to your brain and your brain goes wake up i need to get this air in so then you're wake up your muscles are no longer relaxed and then the air goes in and then your lungs are happy your brain falls asleep and that cycle happens again where your lungs go oh, oh i'm not getting enough oxygen the muscles are relaxed close the airway up and so the brain goes into the cycle so there's this cyclical pattern of waking and sleeping and waking and sleeping so it's all about figuring out you know what is causing this to happen and then at the same time also figuring out you know what does one feel when the airway closes up so the things that we talked about you know the throat feeling sore and raw in the mornings, um, waking up, feeling fatigued and tired, going for your coffee in the morning, just feeling like I need to do this to wake up. So the certain signs and symptoms that we also look for is that, you know, your spouse will complain of your snoring. Snoring isn't a direct link to sleep apnea, but there's a high probability that you have it. So 
and, and that obviously makes sense when we're trying to think of you know things that'll things that'll show us and so if i need a cup of coffee in the morning does that mean i have sleep apnea not technically but there'll be other things that may come into play right i mean there'll be a compounding effect of other things that we sort of ask so there's a bunch of questions that we ask you know do you feel like you're getting drowsy when you're driving you know do you spontaneously fall asleep watching a show or in mid-conversation that's extreme but mm-hmm. i mean there's some people who get that deprived of sleep the sleep hygiene is so bad that just keep waking and falling asleep waking and falling asleep you don't get that deep sleep that gives you that nourishing effect of how you feel rested in the morning so but just reaching for coffee no but then there's other things you know if there's actually excessive need of sort of napping during the day if there's anxiety mood changes depression again if you're not sleeping it's it's like that whole sleep deprivation you just wake up aggravated feel anxious you have uh, anxiety around you um, you know unexplained waking is another thing that we sort of look for as well too so there's certain factors that we kind of all piece together not just the coffee i love my afternoon coffee but yeah. i have it because i love the taste so mebs tell me again about a little bit more about kind of an ideal sleep pattern or what should i be doing or how would i know again that i'm waking up and that i'm comfortable or i'm not comfortable like what would what should i be doing to get better sleep so on an average, a person should likely sleep for about eight hours just to get that deep sleep. And, you know, we go through these shallow sleep, getting to deep sleep patterns. And so going to bed at a decent time would be a good start. So if you're sort of wanting to get eight hours of sleep, you want to start trying to get to bed and start your routine around roughly 10 o'clock, perhaps even 11 at the most. And things to watch out for is make sure you put your electronics away because the white light from your computer and things like that will affect your sleep hygiene. And the other thing to keep in mind is that you're staying away from um, caffeinated products or any kind of stimulants. And at the same time, alcohol is a big factor as well too because it then creates a deep relaxation that will then close your airway as well too. So certainly keep those in mind before you get into your, your, your sleep pattern, creating a nice sleep hygiene pattern that will make it conducive for you to go to sleep. So you wake up in the morning and after eight hours, you should feel refreshed enough to wake up without an alarm having to get you out of deep sleep. Okay, interesting. So alcohol before bed, not a great idea, right? Okay, and and that's is that why people tend to snore more when they have alcohol? Because I mean, you know, you hear that a lot. People saying, "Oh, I, I snore when I when I'm drinking." It's it's I didn't realize it's because of the relaxation. Exactly. So as soon as you're so relaxed, your muscles are relaxed, and it's actually a depressant in a way as well too. So that has an effect on your brain pattern as well too. So it sort of combines to work against you when you're actually trying to get good quality sleep. Interesting. Okay. So you know, staying away from that's probably important so so that's good to know so i mean obviously trying to get to bed at a, at a decent hour is important hopefully waking up without an alarm like you said if, if you're resting properly you shouldn't need an alarm to wake up and staying away from electronics and, and alcohol before bed are all some pretty good things so if i'm doing all of that are there risk factors that i should be aware of i mean does my age does my gender does it like i mean are there risk factors that different people have that would be more likely to have some some sleep apnea yeah so you know it's 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 amazing how there are certain things that we look for and these risk factors kind of pop at you because of the fact that a patient walking in or a person walking in you know you look at gender for example if you touched on that um, men um, are predisposed at about 24 percent to be susceptible to sleep apnea whereas for premenopausal women it's nine percent now we sort of kind of define premenopausal because after women hit menopause 45 50 years of age the stats become almost equal for men and women and it's all to do with the fact that the difference in gender is because of the fact that men tend to store more fat around their neck than women do. But unfortunately, when you get to the menopausal stage, 
that sort of equalizes. And so that's where both men and women are equally susceptible. Obesity is another factor as well, too. So as soon as a person that is obese steps into your clinic, you'll look at that and automatically you know that they're almost 10 to 14 times more susceptible to having sleep apnea. Wow. That's a um, huge difference. Huge, difference, right? huge so. factor. So, you know, an average person compared to another, 10 to 14 times is significant. But even, even for an average you know, non-obese person, if you have a 10% increase in your weight, you're almost six-fold increase in risk factors for sleep apnea just for that little that little portion of weight gain. So your sleep apnea, if you increase, sorry, 10% of your weight, your in, your risk increases quite significantly. Six, yeah, by almost six-fold over a span of four years. So it won't happen immediately, but there's physiological changes that happen in your body that then make you predisposed. And I'll be a walking example of that. I didn't have a lot of issues, but now I find that just with a few pounds extra as I get older, I'm finding that my obstructive sleep apnea issues, which I cer- certainly suffer from, actually is getting significantly more apparent. So, so yeah, it's, it's not just obese people that we worry about. So, I mean, any sort of weight gain, it doesn't have to take you to the obese level, exactly. can actually you know increase your risk factors quite significantly. Are there any other factors that we should just generally know about you know, sleep apnea, any other risk factors that would predispose us to having sleep apnea? Yeah. So, I mean, there's certain statistics that we sort of look at. And for example, when you look at race, a, a, a Caucasian uh, would be at risk of about 4.9%, whereas a non-Caucasian would be at 163 I mean, those are little factors, but still plays a, when trying to diagnose what's going on. People who suffer from allergies who have nasal obstruction. So, you know, allergies, if you have a runny nose, a stuffy nose, automatically you're taking one component of your airway out of the equation so people who have allergies certainly if you treat the allergies hopefully that will reduce that but a big one is actually genetics so if you have an immediate family member who suffers from sleep apnea your mother father siblings um, your risk factor increases from 22 percent to upwards of 86 percent so that's huge so anybody that suffers from sleep apnea in your immediate family you should absolutely get yourself checked okay and so are there other factors in sleep apnea, you know, is it related to any other areas? Is, does sleep apnea affect other medical conditions? Because, you know, we hear that the body is very connected. I mean, one of the things that we know is that you can't just have one problem without it causing other problems. So what else does sleep apnea kind of interact with or, or have effects on? So, you know, some people have a genetic predisposition for some of these medical conditions, but sleep apnea will definitely compound them. So one of the biggest ones is actually cardiovascular disease, strokes, heart attacks. So if you have obstructive sleep apnea, your propensity to have cardiovascular disease goes up by almost 30%. And the reason why is because your body isn't getting the oxygen and therefore your brain goes, I need the oxygen. So it tells your heart work harder, your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up at a point where you're supposed to be sleeping, rejuvenating your body, rehabilitating your body. And that's where your body blood pressure goes up and spikes up. And so when you hear of incidences when people pass in their sleep, there is a link that it could have been obstructive sleep apnea causing a a huge stress in the heart. Okay. Um, You know, we've we've talked a lot about Adults, uh, you know, I, I have a little, I have a little guy, and I know that uh, some of the concerns that have been brought up in the past, they've talked about that it's not just an adult problem; it can actually, yeah. you know, happen in kids. So, explain to me, like, what is the concern, or, or how does this affect kids? So it's actually, yeah, it's it's funny, you know, we talk, talk about obstructive sleep apnea snoring, and we always think it's actually adult related, but it's very much also a problem with children, but. 
it's more of a different approach because, um, you know, with kids, you know, it's, it's sort of more a term called sleep disturbance. And so what we look for is that, you know, when you see a child, in most cases, it's an obstruction due to tonsils and adenoids. And that if they have tonsils and adenoids that are swollen, that causes typically environmental or food allergies. And so when a kid comes in and the airway is obstructed, they're not getting enough oxygen coming in when they're sleeping. And so therefore, you know, kids at that point have the biggest need for proper oxygen because of the fact that they need that brain development. Yeah, they're growing. Yeah. And they're growing. And so, you know, when they're being deprived of oxygen, that's when they wake up cranky, they're, they're irritable, and, you know, they, they go to school, they don't have the attention span because they've not had a good night's sleep, and then they have learning disabilities. And it's more to do with the fact that that it's not that they're not smart, it's just that they're just not rested enough and they get to school and they're just so exhausted. And then, you know, you categorize with the ADHD, they're not paying attention, they're listless, they're failing in school, they're given the term failure to thrive. And so, and it's all simply not even a behavioral issue, it's all to do with the fact that they're just not sleeping. Yeah, interesting. And and I know that that's one of those things, I mean, you can't feed your you know, give your kids a ton of caffeine to keep them going, which is how we survive as exactly. adults sometimes. Yeah. And with kids, I know it's a concern. I know one of the, some of the symptoms are, you know, how would you, how would you know, let's say that, uh, or why would you be concerned about a kid? What are some of the signs and symptoms that the kids could show to the parents? I think you've mentioned a couple of them. I think there's a couple more out there that we could take a look yeah. at. So definitely, you know, when, when you see a child and they have dark circle around their eyes, that tells you that they're not getting enough oxygen when they're sleeping. Um, you know, when they walk around with their mouth open and they have a forward held head posture, so their head's tilted forward because as soon as they tip their head forward, the airway opens up. When they go to sleep, you the parents will typically say, yeah, you know, he's always or she's always kind of starts at one end of the bed. I find them at the other end of the bed. They're so thrashy and they move around so much because they're moving around, thrashing around just to get the air in. And sometimes parents will complain that they have a raspy breathing or some kids will even actually snore. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we'll also sort of hear parents mention in, in private is that, you know, their kid suffers from bedwetting. So that's one of the things that we look for as well, too, is that is, is that something that's happening when they're sleeping. But one of the other things that kind of we look for clinically is that they'll actually present with a bit of a long face because just the way the jaw develops as soon as your mouth is open, your tongue's not sitting on the roof of the mouth because as soon as it, you close your mouth, the tongue falls back and you're closing the airway up. So they're constantly in that posture. Okay. I know one of the other things that we've heard, and, and do you see this as the grinding and clenching of kids' teeth? Because you'll actually see kids, like parents will come in and they'll say, my kid's grinding his teeth. And, and I've heard other people say, well, don't worry, they'll just grow out of it. Uh, I, I think there's some concerns around grinding, right? You definitely. You nailed it. You know, it's, you know, for the longest time, we'd say, yeah, it's baby teeth, they'll fall out, don't worry about it, not a big deal. But now we've actually found the reason why they're grinding. And it's not that the kids are stressed, because with adults, there is a stress component that happens. But with kids, they're grinding because they're trying to desperately get air into their mouth and into their lungs. And so they're grinding away just to open up the airway. So as soon as you see a parent sort of bring the child in and they sort of show that they're grinding, it's a huge trigger. Look in the back of the throat. There's got to be some obstruction happening that's creating this. So let's say we end up, I think I'm not sleeping well, I have some concerns, I'm waking up, I need six cups of coffee to get through the day, or, you know, I have some concerns with my kid or the rest. What what are my options? What can I do to try to figure out, one, whether I have this and then, you know, from there? So what would, what would be 
um, some op- options for me if I think that I fall into this range? Yeah. So the first thing we want to do is that I know, I mean, hopefully your medical professional, your dentist might have recognized it, but if they haven't and you feel like there's a concern, either go see your physician or your dentist and we'll get you in touch with the sleep clinic. And the sleep clinic will actually do a sleep study on you. And the beauty with that is that they send you home with a a simple little unit that you take home. And it's got a few little leads. One goes on your finger that just basically measures your oxygen, your heart rate. The other one sits on your chest and measures your snoring and also measures the position when you're sleeping, where you're snoring most or where you're having suffering of the air exchange. And some of some of the more advancements will give you leads, which will actually measure your brain patterns. And so once those studies are done, your sleep physician will look it over and decide whether you actually are someone that suffers from obstructive sleep apnea or if it's mild in this categories. Some have no issues, some of them have mild, some of them have mild to moderate, some of them have severe. Okay. And so if I get diagnosed with sleep apnea or I go to the sleep clinic and they say, hey, you know, you have mild or moderate sleep apnea, you know, what are my options at that point? What, what are some of the treatments for sleep apnea? So there's several options out there, but the most common one that patients end up with is a CPAP. So basically, it's a device that's, and you know, you hear these funny stories, it's the Darth Vader mask. And so it's it's actually, it's it's basically designed to give positive air pressure. And so it's designed to actually continuously put air down your throat. So even if you have an obstruction, there's always air going into your lungs. The downside with that is that although it's the golden standard, you know, there is a bit of a compliance issue. And so the adherence rates for CPAPs is roughly about 36% after the first six months because you have a nasal cannula and you have a mask for some people. And so it's constantly putting air in. So a lot of patients will complain either they have a difficult time with the mask or the nasal cannulas because it's drying out the, the mouth. The other option is oral appliances and that you would have to see your dentist for. The CPAP actually, like I said, was a golden standard and it's used for all cases, but with oral appliances, we typically tend to treat the mild to moderate cases. Okay. Now, having said that, I mean, you know, a patient with severe airway issues that try the CPAP and it doesn't work for them, then at least something is better than nothing. So then we'll even treat the severe cases hoping that they'll at least get them to the mild to moderate. So at least something is better than nothing. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so so obviously some great options, right? I mean the CPAP machine, which again, if compliance is good, CPAP is one of the you know, one of the best ways to do it. And of yeah. course the other is the mandibular advancement device, which, you know, can be made at dentist clinic and the CPAP you can get from the sleep clinics. How about some some ideas? Because as we're talking about this, I mean you've given us definitely a lot of information around sleep apnea, but what could I do to just try to avoid is are there any things that I can do without getting into treatment like let's say if I'm starting to worry about myself what could I do to just make myself healthier and to try to avoid you know needing all the treatment that's necessary yeah so you know I mean certainly you know we touched on obesity and weight gain so one of the first things that everybody talks about you know we all want to get the immediate treatment that will make things better but we don't deal on what caused it so so certainly you know looking at a lifestyle change where perhaps looking at weight loss you know if you can reduce your you know bmi you know that will definitely help to reduce the weight 
the, the fatty stores around your neck, the compression of the airways. So certainly that would be a starting point. Um, the other thing we talk about is just working on your sleep hygiene. You know, just, just the things we talked about earlier, trying to get to bed at a decent time, you know, stay away from electronics, alcohol. Alcohol definitely suppresses the uh, the, the airway because of the relaxation that you have there. Um, then you have to have behavioral modifications. When you're sleeping, if we fall asleep on our backs, the airway closes up immediately because it closes your airway just in that manner. So, you know, there's the other factor, smoking. We didn't talk about that, but... Um, smoking is a bit of a risk factor as well, too, only because of the fact that there's actually irritations in the back of the throat and the, the, the swelling that you create in there will then close up your airway as well, too. So smoking cessation is a big factor as well. Yeah, awesome. So, yeah, and it's kind of one of those things I think, you know, we could probably learn a lot from just being a little healthier, getting a little more exercise, losing yeah. a little bit of weight, and in a general sense, you know, can make a big difference. And I think it's important that people hear that there are some things they can do at home, but this is something that's very serious. Yeah. And something that we want to take seriously and that we want to help people get better. And so, you know, however you choose to do it with your medical professional, with your dental professional, through a sleep study, um, with sleep physicians, you know, any which way you have the ability to, it's really important to take a look at that. So, Absolutely. you know, I, any any final thoughts or anything else you want to add there? I mean, I think that we've got a lot of great information today. I mean, I think people will learn a lot about sleep apnea and, and how we do things. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at this point? Yeah, you know, don't be shy about reaching out to your medical professional, whether it's your dentist or medical doctor, because it's one of those taboos that people are afraid to talk about. And it's one of those weird things that our spouses, whatever relationships, you know, um, men tend to find out quicker that they're snorers from their partners versus women do because their partners are shy to tell them because of the fact that there's a social stigma about telling your spouse that she snores. And so women tend to not get diagnosed as early as men do. And so don't be afraid to reach out to your health professional and sort of seek out help because it is a medical condition and you need help. And so it's, it's, it's going to save a life. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much for your time. I think this has been very educational and hopefully uh, a lot of people out there will be able to learn a little bit from, uh, from what you told us today. So thanks thank you so much. Time. Appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast. If you would like more information, please check out our website at www.trekdental.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Trek Dental.